Hi, I'm Charles Stanton. I'm on the faculty of the Honors College at UNLV and the Boyd School of Law. I'm Lana Weatherald. I'm a third-year law student. And welcome to Social Justice. Social Justice, a conversation. A conversation. Good evening, everybody. Thank you once again for joining us on Social Justice, a conversation. Once again, I am Lana Weatherald, a third-year law student at the Boyd School of Law, joined by Professor Stanton, who is not only a professor at the Boyd School of Law, but also a professor at UNLV's Honors College. Today, we've got a plethora of topics to discuss with you guys. Um, And as always, if you have any concerns, questions, topics you would like to hear the professor and I discuss, we do have email addresses attached to the school that we would love to hear from you at. Mine is w-e-t-h-e-l-1 at unlv.nevada.edu. And if you send me an email, I'll go ahead and make sure the professor receives it as well. And we, of course, want to encourage other people um, bringing their ideas and bringing their support and bringing their sort of um, thoughts outside of just the professor and I having these conversations. So with that, I will let the professor lead us out. Sure. Um, Good evening, everybody. Yes, uh, I wanted to talk. We're going to talk tonight about a few things that... uh, 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 as a famous philosopher once said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Uh, having to do with uh, 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 racism in America, uh, having to do with uh, uh, police uh, 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 problems that have persisted, and finally ending up with uh, uh, our, uh, uh, the protection of our uh, high school athletes. Uh, ben Jealous was on. Ben Jealous, of course, is a, is, a, is a noted civil rights leader, and he also uh, has written a new book, uh, Never Forget uh, Our People Were Always uh, Free. Uh, it's, a, it's a marvelous book. I've read it. Uh, it has to do with this man's odyssey, his journey to find the truth of exactly why racism persists in America, and he gets into the whole origination of racism, how people were basically reduced to property, and how through uh, 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 racial uh, 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 marriage between uh, people of color and white people, uh, so many of the people who were uh, proclaiming uh, these racist ideals were actually people of color themselves. And and of course, uh, so many of the people who were, were victims were part white. So it was a very, very interesting analysis he had. One of the things he talked about in his book and, of course, in the interviews that he's had was the fact that the persistence, the persistence of racism uh, exists in many ways because people have given up trying to, to, to end it. Um, there's, there's almost like a resignation, a feeling that America is what it is, and that uh, because it has been this way for so many hundreds of years, uh, it, it will never change. And uh, of course, uh, that defeatism has affected all levels of our government, not only uh, in the Congress, but also our judiciary and the executive branch as well. Uh, I think one of the things that he touched on, and I'm gonna throw this over to Lana, is how racism has been a weapon not only used against uh, people of color, it's actually been used against white people as well. Because what racism has basically done, it has divided the country in such a way that the antagonisms between the two separate groups have aided the one group that runs the country, which is the wealthy, the affluent, 
corporate America, the, the one-tenth of one percenters, who basically uh, 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 have profited from, from our division. Uh, and I believe uh, uh, coming up now with the next Congress, we're going to see even more incidences of this as the Republican uh, majority in the House uh, actually works to completely uh, uh, forestall any kind of legislation in, in, in the Congress and also basically attempt to, as, as much as they can, try to rescind benefits and rights that have been uh, uh, established, uh, long established. Um, yeah, you know, none of, none of this, none of this is shocking. When I first moved down to Florida, I was struck by monuments and elementary schools and things that were dedicated to the m- memory of Robert E. Lee, right? So you talk about now there's sort of this dissidence and now there's sort of this removal from, I, you know what, there are still people that sort of you champion racism as as a and then so you see these elementary schools you see these mom, monuments to robert e lee you know what else i found professor they were naming their children after robert e lee I, I can't tell you how many kids i knew from down south who had the middle name lee and i'm thinking in my, i mean how are we ever going to get rid of this how can we pretend it isn't going to infiltrate our legislature when we're naming our kids after these confederate generals i mean what in god's name so it doesn't surprise me that this is now infiltrating into the legislature and we're now seeing racist ideals like we didn't see until you know jim crow era i'm not surprised um because we've we've never like you said i think very early on in the show we've never taken the time to fix it we've become lazy we've become apathetic but now it's almost become something to champion your racism as, as sick as it is um so, you know, I personally um, wanted to take this time in this show um, to talk about how it's affecting students I know. And when the professor said it's infiltrating the legislature and infiltrating people in Congress and people, um, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, um, I went to a very small public liberal arts school. And you're seeing this sort of all across the country uh, that champions ideals like critical race, teaching critical race theory theory, teaching um, that diverse classes make successful classes, that the more people and more um, sort of parody and voices you have, sort of the more successful that the student body is. Um, DeSantis has come in and, and sort of said, stop this wokeness, stop using critical race theory, stop. And this is a direct attack where he has replaced now members of the Board of Governors at my small institution. It's called the New College of Florida. You guys can look this up. It's all national news. Um, but this is what you're seeing, right? It's now not only are the very few colleges or the very few institutions or the very few people that are willing to say, hey, critical race theory is something we need to look into. Hey, we are still doing these. Hey, we are still perpetuating a horrible racist culture within our institutions. And these things are happening. And will pervade our legislature. Instead of saying, oh, let's teach those things, we are shutting down the very institutions that are starting to speak up or starting to notice these things that the professor and I are talking about at length. So it, it is terrifying and you are seeing it on the ground. I don't think the professor and I are fear-mongering when we say racist ideologies will begin to per- pervade the laws that that are getting passed, the laws that hit the floor, or even just what's talked about colloquially on the news every day. It will become racially based. We've seen it every day, and now it is happening on the ground. Um, so I think, you know, you can talk about it at length. It's it's hard to have a call to action here because it's such a massive problem that what could any one person do? Um, but, yeah. <laughs> I I think that one of the things that could, that could be done and... I, I, I don't think it's been done enough, is to look at what the Confederacy stood for. Right. 
and 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 what the Confederacy stood for and why we had a civil war comes down to the basic idea that not only were people of color unequal to people who were white, but people of color were property, they were chattel, they were not full human beings. They could be bought and sold at a, at a whim of a master. The idea that people put up statues to people who propagated that, and supported yeah. those ideas, people in that who who support that, you, they really need to be confronted about it, and and asked, you know, the governor or senator or whoever it is, do you do you believe do you believe that slavery was a good thing? Do you believe that the, the subjugation of whole generations of people? You know what's so scary, Professor? I believe if you asked Republican senators, governors, I mean, some of the more extremists, the vast majority of them would just call it a state's right issue. I believe slavery was because that's how they've started Mm -hmm. to frame it. They've started to move what was one of the most gross uh, failures in human history, probably the most gross failure in human history uh, as a state's state's rights issue. I mean, much of like what they've done with abortion. Uh, It's just the most heinous and disgusting things you can possibly imagine become issues of states rights. It wouldn't surprise me if we asked that question, if that would be the answer, truly. Yeah, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, in a connected area, because I think, as I've said on the on the program with Lana, I believe the misogyny, the racism, the prejudice against LGBT people, all these issues are, are connected. connected. There, there's, a, there's a misguided uh, uh, set of beliefs there. The power structures are changing, right? Um, a woman like me could now attain the same amount of wealth. I mean, look at Mackenzie Bezos. She's mm. one of the hundredth, hundred richest people in, mm. in the world, right? Um, there's you're, And then there's men of color, women of color, who are now starting to break barriers mm. and sort of become the positions that white men thought were only for them, yeah. right? So I think, number one, and, you know, it's it's people don't like saying it because it's you know the it's sort of a catch-all term but it is just white men that sort of feel that their position is threatened or that their ease into rising the ranks or that their ability to always be number one while being relatively mediocre uh, has sort of fallen to the wayside Mm -hmm. um, because now the doors have to be at least a a little more ajar or at least we're giving Mm -hmm. the um yeah. Giving under the guise that the doors are a little bit more ajar. Uh, so I, I think that's it. I mean, I think when we say all these issues are connected, it's because for for once and now because of the teachings of critical race theory and because of the teachings of what our institutions are and can be, we are seeing some advancement in groups and minorities that we have never, ever seen. And that's a threat. It's yeah. a threat. Yeah, I think that's I think that's why the uh, the Supreme Court will will. Uh, uh, do away with affirmative action mm-hmm. uh, when that that particular case is decided, because that 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 privilege and power, and and entitlement and the accumulation of wealth, was largely based on the denial of the vast majority of people right. uh, from having any opportunity to, at all. To, at all, so that, that's also part of it, and of course, uh, I think it ties also into the way our political system works vis-a-vis the Congress, where people yeah. basically are almost, they have a sense of entitlement, like you can be a senator for 30 years or 40 years or <laughs> right. 50 years, and uh, 
there's there needs I think there definitely in that area needs to be a major change. Right. I mean, you saw it in some of these, you know, judicial hearings regarding Facebook or Google or Twitter. I mean, we're talking about real life security issues that affect every day. I mean, worldwide, not just Americans. This is worldwide issues, security protocols that end up in judicial committees that these guys don't even understand the Internet, let alone the security, the features, the coding that's inherent to something like Facebook or Google. It's like. How are these guys sitting here? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God! And but then they're deciding the you know. Yeah, it's it's, it's the guys that were twenty four or twenty five, even in their thirties during Jim, the Jim Grow South, they're still sitting in no. the Senate, still sitting in. So what's there fa- you go. What's fascinating about all this is how um, back going back to Lyndon Johnson, who, right? Who put through a lot of the great social programs, probably put uh, along with uh, Franklin Roosevelt, right? Put more social programs than anybody uh his passage of the civil rights bill was the fact that a number of democratic senators he was able to to influence them to vote for it that the republican party in the 60s was very progressive right and the ones who were holding out were, were the, the democrats were the, the, the democrats and now of course and now of course the whole thing is has reversed Burst, yeah. which, which is interesting so, so that so that uh, uh, introduction leads us to our second issue, which is police reform, and we've you know we've talked in previous programs about you know uh, uh, the issues that pertain to proper law enforcement and discriminatory law enforcement, uh, and there was another, uh, uh, I guess it was the other night, another killing or unexplained death of a person who was. I believe the man said prior to his death. I'm going to be another George Floyd. They're yeah, trying to I, George Floyd me. I think so. Yeah. Yes. 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 So th- there's a new book. Uh, then there's a new book that uh, uh, I had the opportunity to look at. It. It's called The Riders Come Out at Night, and it is a <laughs> case study of Oakland, California, and all the various efforts over a number of decades <laughs> to reform the police department, and uh, having to do with basically a lot of stuff that was clearly. Uh, completely improper. Um, they have had uh, um, watchdogs in a number of these cities like L.A. where they have federal intervention and everything. But I, I, I think, I think one of the things that they have to do it. And you had you had brought the point up uh, in a previous uh, uh, broadcast about how you're, you're getting a certain subset of people to go into the police department whose intentions may not be. Uh, um, apropos for what they're doing, um, I think they need to change the whole way mm-hmm. you 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 create a police department. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the ways they could do it is whereas now it's basically you go to the police academy and you go through that whole procedure. Show up with your high school diploma yeah, and yeah, you're ready to go. Yeah. I, I think that what they need to do is have two parts of police training. One part of police training is obviously being adept to be a police officer, knowing you know what you would have to do in a situation which was dangerous to the society or yourself, and well, and all those things about the gun and all, all that stuff. So that's one part of it. But the second part of it should should be uh, a, a curriculum, actually a, a curriculum, a, a, a university curriculum. They need to have a degree. I, I mean, I, I well, I, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say. I'm going to say. I'm going to say even even uh, if they don't have a degree. Let's just say we bring somebody in from the high schools, right. whatever. 
you're going to get a college part, a, a university part of your training to be a police right. officer. That there's going to be humanities part of the police of the police department where you have professors of law and all the rest of the stuff, and they're going to get into the issues in depth of what the res- responsibilities are, what the dynamic mm-hmm. between the officer and the public Absolutely. is, and get into the history of it, and 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 go through and go through that history r- related to you know George Floyd and all those things, but make case studies of all these things that happened, and say, listen, this is. To be a police officer is a duty and a responsibility and a privilege, but th- this is where they fell off. So when you're 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 gonna you're gonna be coming into the into the force, yes, you have to do certain things that are required, obviously, to maintain law and order, but you also have to be r- r- responsible for these other things and, and respectful of these other things, and maybe there's a number of people who would come into that. Uh, 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 environment who might be able to be reached as to what their outlook should be. Yeah, I mean, you would hope all the uh, tiki torch cops, if you're catching my flow, um, we, we would we would hope all of them would be dissuaded by such a liberal indoctrination kind of education. We would hope that that would, you know, keep them out of the force. But I wouldn't be so sure they'd probably just sit through their class like they sat through their, you know, algebra class in high school and get their C and move on um, because that's the kind of people I believe cops to be. Uh, but m- maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe that would change even one or two cops mind and even that would be better. But I just have absolutely no faith in our police force. I think from the bottom up, it needs to be completely destroyed. I don't, I mean, I would never, I would never, and people then all say, well, who would you call if you're in danger? I'll tell you what, I was robbed here in Vegas, straight up robbed. Uh, I called the cops and they said, no, we got a homicide ahead of you. We got a domestic violence ahead of you. So I don't know if it, so I tried to call the, you know, they didn't come to my rescue. They didn't come to my help. People don't, we don't need the cops. We don't need the cops. I mean, you know, I, I say that as someone who has never been murdered or raped, but I don't know. I don't know. I just feel fundamentally um, we have gotten to the point where we have an armed militia. I mean, they're an armed militia threatening people in our streets constantly daily. Uh, just this past week, we know of a serial rapist cop. We know of a murderer yeah. cop. We know of a, I mean, it's like, come on, what are we doing? And why do we pretend that there are any good seeds in this bunch? If they were good seeds, guess what? They'd go to law school. They'd go get their criminology degree. They'd go become a, and then maybe the good seeds end up detectives, but they certainly aren't walking the beat. I just have such a, well, you know, <laughs> I am so anti-law enforcement. I will- I, I will I will say this from having you know you know worked in the justice system and having had you know members of my family who were you know in the police department in, in various capacities. Uh, I've known a bunch of people who were idealistic. Right. They wanted to do they wanted to do certain things. Um, I think to be fair. There are there are there are many who do wrong. Right, uh, that's for sure. The, a number of years ago, I read a book called "The New Centurions" by Joe Wamba. I've heard of it. Yeah, yes. Joe Wamba was had been a, a detective on the LA Police Force. The police force is composed of you know various kinds of people with various kinds of intentions, but ultimately, the responsibility for what the police force is. And what the police force does rests with society. I, it's, yeah, a, it's, a a soci- it's a societal responsibility. So if we as a society observe and see and, and uh, allow to be permissible 
things that we know are wrong, then we have to take a certain responsibility. I think a lot of the public, a lot of the public, uh, they don't want to know what the police do. They want, they want law and order, quote-unquote law and order, but we don't want to know how we get law and order. And I think there has to be, you know, one of the things that they need to do uh, regarding, uh, you know, in a, a lot of the, the cities, uh, you have police review boards, uh, like in New York City, where, you know, they, would, they review every, every case of uh, police brutality and all the rest of these things. I think in all these cities, it has to be mandated by law that the, the recommendations of the, of the review board uh, take on a force of law. Yeah, I, I don't think absolutely. It, I don't think it should be left to the hierarchy of the police Maybe department. Maybe it is just qualified immunity is so much of the problem mm, because yeah. they do believe they're larger than life and they do believe they're untouchable because largely they are. Um, it, maybe that is so much of the issue. I just think, Professor, very plainly, if I knew before I went to law school that there were members of you know, the legal community that were rapists, member of the legal community that were capable of killing people mm. in cold blood, that were capable of lying about it, that were cap- If I knew that that was pervasive in the legal field, I would have never went to law school. Mm. There are gentlemen that know exactly what's going on in the police force. This is no secret anymore. Mm. We know exactly what's going on in police departments across this country, yet you still have young men filing in to sign up to become a cop. Mm. Why is that? Uh, Because guess what? I wouldn't become a lawyer if I knew there were rapists and killers among my ranks. And they know there are rapists and killers among their ranks, and they don't care. And they they subscribe to the same theories anyway. And I I will never respect it. Yeah. No, I think think there's there's much to what you say. I think that... um I think that you know, from having you know been involved in the, the justice system, uh, I, I, will, I will just say this: it's a very, very difficult um, uh, undertaking. Yeah. You know, to you know, you know, we, we see things. We see things in a sense r- removed from 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 the actual uh, uh, events that people encounter. Uh, but there are situations where uh, it's it's even the most idealistic person has to deal with things that are very, very hard to, uh, 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 to get a grasp of, uh, particularly particularly in particularly in domestic violence cases. Just to, just to name one idea, where you know uh, the police go in there, and I've seen this a number of times, and there's been abuse. Right. And the police, you know, want to do their, what their, their job, basically, and they want to arrest the person. And then, um, uh, for whatever reason, the, the, the party who's been assaulted says, no, Refuses don't, charges, don't yeah. do it. And, and, you know, they're caught in the middle. Um, you know, I, I always, I, I, we, we, we blame the police for a lot of things, but, you know, one of the things where they were, they were terribly at fault uh, from an abuse point of view was O.J. Simpson's wife. She had been repeatedly abused, and they had complaints against them. And then, of course, uh, nothing ever happened to him. And the ironic thing is, the one, the one guy that arrested him, the one guy that arrested him, was 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 Mark Furman. Yeah. I think we could do a whole separate show on and some of this, you know, for as anti-police as I am, this is more the laws that are on the books. It is very difficult if especially if the woman is not cooperating to yeah. get sort of 
stalking charges oh, filed to get sort of th- to get something like that through and to find people willing to prosecute yeah. those claims yeah. it's, it is very difficult yeah. and it is very hard uh, for women that are put in positions of peril where oh, men sure. are concerned in no. DV situations no uh, th- you know that that I almost think is a whole different conversation than police reform almost because I think that is how we more how we view women and more how women who are battered are treated and then more so we'll blame the lawyers here I'll take a little bit of culpability I think what's the the willingness to prosecute things like that um, it's not there Uh, you know we have to have more prosecutors willing to take these stalking men to task willing to take these and and then if you've added the caveat that yeah a lot of these women don't even want to cooperate because they fear for their own lives if they cooperate so I think yeah I, I will I'm even willing to say I don't know how much of that is a police issue and how much of that is just a how we view women and how we handle domestic violence cases and how we handle stalking and things like that yeah. in this country. Well, I think I, I, I want to uh, I want to give a, a, a shout out to uh, a remarkable movie called Women Talking, which I think everybody should see, men, women, everybody should see this movie uh, with uh, Claire Foy's in it, and it has to do with the Mennonites. And uh, the various uh, misdeeds of, of the of the male community in the Mennonite uh, uh, sect or cult right. or whatever you right. want to call it uh, is really an astounding piece of writing, astounding piece of acting. Um, and and I and, and she said is another movie that uh, is also remarkable. Uh, but there's a patriarchy in the United States. Sure. There's a yep. patriarchy in the United States. Uh, and I think there's based a, on color and gender. Based on color and gender, and and uh, uh, when these crimes occur, uh, basically, uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, guilty until proven innocent. Basically, right. so the women go in there, and I've seen it many times. This happens to you. That happens to you. You know, they look at you. You know, mm-hmm. like, really, with, mm-hmm. two, with two heads yeah. and a tail. Right. Right. You know, you know. Or what did you do to provoke such an incident? Kind that, of situation. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, the the last thing we really wanted to talk about today uh, is uh, has to do with uh, you know awareness of uh, you know uh, athletic uh, safety having to do with of course the uh, situation with the Buffalo Bills, Demar Hamlin, uh, Demar Hamlin of course, and and uh, the the very uh, quick and uh, efficient uh, intervention by by the people in, in, on the field to to, to, to save his life. Uh, a very interesting article in today's uh, USA Today mm. about the uh, 24,000 uh, active athletic fields for high school uh, athletics involving pretty much every sport, male, right, right. female, what have you. And uh, there's only 8,000 athletic trainers for 24,000. And then you think about, you know, so many of the in the top athletes, we're talking about the most competitive, often come in low-income neighborhoods, yeah, yeah. and then they do not have AED-level kind of right. care. They don't have paramedics nearby. They don't have, I, I mean, to not even have a defibrillator in a lot of these yeah. schools. Uh, it, it Terrifying. And and then yeah. you think, you know, you watched with Damar Hamlin, those were the finest athletic trainers in our country. Yeah. Those were some of the, you know, better equipped medical personnel that you could find, mm. right? Uh, he still almost didn't make it. Yeah, he yeah. still died twice. Yeah, he still, yeah. and, and they couldn't have been any faster or been any better. I mean, the performance of them, obviously, admirable, remarkable, yeah. beyond words, right? Yeah, yeah. But th- he still almost didn't make it. So imagine in a low-income neighborhood in Texas yeah. where all they churn out all these superstar football players, and the same thing happens to a kid. 
Mm. Right. Is are they going to have a two minute response time? Are they going to have a ambulance waiting 10 feet away to take you to one of the most premier medical facilities in this country? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Probably not. So, uh, yeah, I I think you bring up a great point, Professor, that we have a, a I think a problem when we have this much money coming into sports and I'm passionate about sports. I love sports. Mm. But when you think about the amount of money that comes in, it's egregious. Multi-billion dollar corporations Mm. then that don't sort of protect their farm system. I hate to call it that, but that's what it is when you start recruiting out of high school and start putting them in the Alabama, putting them in the right D1 school, Mm. making sure they go to the SEC or the Big Ten, making sure their route's right, right? It is all... It's the NFL's game. They've got their hand in that. They've got scouts going out there early in high school. And then to not provide the safety features when you're a multi-billion dollar yeah. corporation is interesting. It, 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 I found it fascinating uh, to think about where we live, mm-hmm. that we have many high school football teams here. And I wonder what their what their safety, safety protocols, protocols are, particularly, particularly when these young people are training uh, in July and August. Right. And, you know, for those Whoa. of you who are ha- have not been to Vegas or are listening outside of the Vegas area, we can have temperatures exceeding 110 or 115 degrees. Right, right. And, and have all the equipment on. Right. And, and you've yeah. got equipment, right? Yeah. And then you're practicing outdoors. In the, so, you know, we have a lot of, we will just say underfunded public schools um, in Nevada and southeastern Nevada in particular. So, um yeah, it is curious that we. I'm surprised we haven't seen more of this. Yeah, yeah. quite frankly, you know what we saw with Demar Hamlin mm. was shocking. But I was yeah. almost thinking, wow, if that can happen that easily, mm-hmm. I'm shocked we almost don't see more of it. Yeah, it was it was interesting too, uh, you know. And this this has to do with the professional team, the Raiders, where, where they were out. Uh, they were out in August. Yeah, right. On, on four or five days, where, where it was like over 100. 10 degrees i'm thinking to myself you know that's not being smart no you know they have this huge indoor facility there's nothing that you can do in the mega indoor facility that they have than putting these guys out there right and and plus the fact that no temperature is like it is here right so it didn't make any sense on that cheery and lovely (laughs) note We hope you guys can all stay inside and stay warm here in January. And we thank you once again for tuning in. Uh, Sorry the show was not as lighthearted as sometimes it can usually be, but of course we uh, thank you for giving us your time and energy anyway. So have a wonderful rest of your weekend and thank you for listening to Social Justice, A Conversation. Thank you for listening to our show. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us at Wethel1, that's W-E-T-H-E-L-1 at nevada.unlv.edu or to contact Professor Charles Stanton, contact him at C-H-A-R-L-E-S, that's charles.stanton, S-T-A-N-T-O-N, at unlv.edu. See you next time. time.